0: Thank you for tuning in to Tactile, a practical guide to transforming art and culture. This is the podcast of Leveraging a Network for Equity, LANE, a program of the National Performance Network. LANE supports arts organizations of color and rural organizations with time and resources to grow their infrastructure in ways that are culturally authentic and moves the field towards justice. I'm your host, Sage Crump, Program Specialist for LANE. On uh, today's podcast, we're talking with writer, facilitator of social justice movements, uh, author of emergent strategies, and podcaster on how to survive the end of the world, Adrian Marie Brown. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, <laughs> I was
1: like, I'm my own hype human. Too. I got you on
0: that, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's By way of so many introductions about what you, uh, how you show up in the world. In some ways, are there things I didn't mention that you're like, people should know this about me who don't know me, or maybe oh,
1: for the first time? gosh. Um, well, I live in Detroit, and I'm like a lover of Detroit, um, nice. that's, and was shaped by Grace Lee Boggs. Like, she was one of my mentors, and kind of by the culture of transform yourself to transform the world um, that exists here. I'm working on a book. Um, that's coming out in February called Pleasure Activism. And it's really, um, feels very related to emergent strategy and to the other work I've done, but it's just um, uh, basically that you know, we need to make justice and liberation uh, some of the most pleasurable experiences we can have as humans. So how do we look at the places where we do feel pleasure, give ourselves more permission, um, give ourselves more honesty, and recognize that's part of our nature and use it for good. So, so
0: yeah. see how that's related to emergent strategies and this idea of like <laughs> creating more possibilities, right? Like, Exactly. We create so many possibilities and how many of them can feel so good?
1: It feels so good. <laughs> it feels so good to be with people who are possibility oriented also. Um, I've really been noticing that lately when I'm around folks who are either scarcity-oriented, scarcity-minded, scarcity-hearted, um, and um, and that brings a lot of negativity, um, you know, and it's, like, life is already hard enough. <laughs> like, life is, like, giving you the most already, so how do we, instead of leaning into it, um, how do we actually lean towards possibility and cultivate it with a lot of intention? So. Wow. Jace, that is my feelings and my thoughts. That's all I care about. <laughs> oh, and I'm a huge, huge fan of Steven Universe. That might be another thing people should know. Okay. I think it's the most important resilience practice that people could engage in. Is <laughs> like watching this little queer show about a gym.
0: That's great. So one of the things that, um, there are a couple of questions that I want to ask everyone as part of this podcast series. and. Great. Um, you being the first person is super exciting because the question is, how do you believe change happens?
1: Mm, I love that. Um, I believe that change happens um, slowly and constantly. Um, so that we're always in a state of change. The change is constantly happening. I believe um, the change happens as it's needed and as it's time. Um, and that sometimes we're not ready for it. Like sometimes they're like, oh, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> and and it could be time, like, I don't say that in a positive or negative way, if that makes sense. Like there's changes that happen that I like, there's changes that happen that I really don't like. And a lot of times I, I've been like, oh, how do I, uh, the th- what makes a difference is that change is something that's in our hands. Um, that we actually make change, and that everything that is um, sentient on this planet is making change. Um, And things, you know, I'm like, and wind is making change and all these other things. So I'm just like, it's just constantly happening, and then we are a part of it. Um, And when it comes to communities, when it comes to um, society and human structures of of change-making, I really think that change happens in collective ways. Um, or changes that last, changes that are accountable and like make sense for our species, those tend to happen in collective ways, and I think it's really important to keep that in mind because a lot of times, um, you know, I think folks are like, I'll be a mad genius and I'll be out here making change by myself and not seeing like the millions of hands that are required to create change. and then I think the last thing is I think that change happens, real change happens very deeply. So I think it's, um, you know, it's different, like, from reorganizing, like, the, what do they call it? you know, sort of, like, what's on the surface of life. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, like, sort of reorganize your, your, <laughs> I just reorganized my house and moved my bedroom from the back to the front <laughs> of the house. Nice. Um and so it's like, oh, you know, I, I created this change in the house. I could snap it back very easily. I didn't like change the structure of the building. So I think it's like also having a sense of what are the changes that are possible, what are the changes you have agency over, um, and like what is real long term change versus like short surface level change. And and I'm much more focused on the, the former than the latter mm-hmm. in my work. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I appreciate the, the sharing about your bedroom. Can't wait to see it. Um, I know. <laughs> because this idea of the, the apartment, the space, is still the same.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But you've moved some things around. And when I think about um, uh, change, like we're talking about Lane, which is around organizations and how they function and their yes. relationship to creating change in the world, sometimes it feels like there are um, definitive boundaries right like we have this yeah. building we have this uh-huh. and how then can change actually change which is constantly happening be um shaped intentionally inside the walls that you currently have like how do the walls not become definitive of what can happen inside of them
1: you yeah. yeah i mean i get really interested in like structural shifts right Um, And, like, you know, not to say things aren't different. Like, changing where my bedroom is is really changing my experience of my home. Um, And I've been going through a period of healing where it's, like, very comforting to me to have this, like, smaller little room, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And there's certain things about it I'm like, oh, this feels right. This feels right to me. But I think a lot of times I see this in organizations where folks confuse um, the surface for the structural, and so it'll be like, well, you know, we want more diversity. We changed um, the, the face of the person who's running the organization. Uh, but we stuck them into a hierarchical system that was reliant on funder um, direct- directives. And mm-hmm. so, and then we're surprised um, that everything didn't change. And suddenly the, the organization wasn't like, deeply accountable to the community or deeply trusted by the community. You know, we're like, well, what's going on? Like we got a black ED or we got a this or that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that communities can sense when something is not really for them um, or driven by their desires, you know, they might get hoodwinked once or twice, but it's hard to keep pulling that off. Um, And so that's one of the things I always think about is like, what are the changes that will really be meaningful to the community that I'm a part of. Um, and it's one of the things that actually hems me up a lot around gentrification stuff, because mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes we get really caught in stories of like pushing back on gentrification that don't include like listening to the community and making sure that that pushback really centers what they want to happen in the space. So I've seen this yeah. happen in Detroit, you know, where we're like, no, you know, this, we don't want this. We don't want that. And then when I talk to folks who are like, we've been living in this community for a long time, we're actually really excited about some of these changes. Um, And that doesn't mean we don't want to shape it to be much more oriented towards what we have, but I think we get this binary thinking about the changes instead of being like, oh, like, you know, some of these changes have really resulted in more jobs. How do we make sure that we're in a discourse that includes thinking about how more jobs are going to come to the community? Right? And I think that's when organizers hit the sweet spot where they're like, we're listening to what it is that you need and we're also paying attention to the larger patterns of how change and power move. And we're finding the place in the middle where justice can actually grow um, and where we can help our communities see themselves more clearly. You know, it's It's a lot to balance, but I think it's really important rather than just pushing back on changes that don't originate with us. Do
0: you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. And I I feel like you've hit the sweet spot of why I love talking to you so much is the the (laughs) getting past the binaries of like this either or option. But what is the nuance Uh, of the complexity that we're actually looking at? And how do we work uh, on the level of complexity and not feel, due to urgency or other reasons, um, pulled out of that? You know, into like, oh, we're just going to do this one little thing or this this thing, and not that focus isn't important, but there are all these layers at play,
1: Mm -hmm. right? I think focus is like mind-blowingly important, but I also think that, um, like reducing things can really very quickly turn them into a lie. You know, and suddenly we find ourselves saying things that are not true um, to our communities and not true to ourselves, and you know, we do this with like. New Year's Eve resolutions and stuff, right? It's just like, I just need to make a change. It's got to be like this. And we don't take into account, you know, um, well, what's actually been happening with our lives and and what is that unhealthy behavior attending to or taking care of.
0: And it's funny because I think there's this moment of trying to figure out how to engage those things that um, we feel like are, are problematic for us in a way that doesn't... Um, make us the bad people, right? Yes, Like, yeah. How do you think about this idea? You've mentioned it earlier, of like transform yourself to transform the world and yes. not continue to participate in the way the world reduces you or, yes. or undervalues you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like most of my adult life has been luckily, you know, kind of focused on that work, this work of saying like, oh, like what what the world... Um, what the world is up to for women like myself, for people who are, um, you know, who are not born into the upper one percent, right? Like mm-hmm. if we just start there. I'm like, oh, what I'm expected to do and what the world has set up for me is, uh, you know, there's a capitalist system in place, and I'm supposed to be, you know, somewhere in like the service realm of that system. Um, maybe not quite like working as a maid for someone, maybe not domestic service, but other kinds of service. Like I'm still, still supposed to be like part of someone else's dreams coming true. Um, and for me as a woman, as a black woman, as a queer woman, um, to instead say I'm really interested in my own dreams and manifesting my own dreams, that's already like um, subversive. And then and then I, I kind of layer onto that because I'm like, well, I, I'm not even interested in like monetary gain as – the dream that I'm trying to pursue, <laughs> right? mm-hmm. um, Even though sometimes I'm like, well, it would be nice. Um, and, you know, I'm like, oh, the way I measure what I think of as as my success or whatever is, is very distinct. Um, and that's pushing back against, like, what the systems would say. And in order to get to a place where I thought that was possible, I had to really transform certain things inside myself, right? So I had to look inside myself and be like, who told me what success means and why did I choose to believe them? And do I still believe them? And I have to stop being disappointed um, that I'm not making a gazillion dollars for doing the work that I do. Um, I have to start instead looking for markers that reflect that the world that I want to be a part of. I had to really change that in myself.
0: One of the things we're trying to do in Lane is is reframe that, right? That, 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 yeah. um, uh, Our organizations are amazing, like the fact that they've survived as long as they have, the fact that um, regardless of their budget sizes, there's so much to learn, so much to learn that uh, folks who have access to financial resources and staffs and all kinds of things actually want to learn from, um, um, and really trying to to uplift those. But part of that has been pulling that out of the organizations ourselves in order to say that to somebody else and it sounds like because very- it's like they can't see it in themselves exactly yeah yeah um i mean we were in one meeting and uh one one of the organizations was like wait i have intellectual capital like wait i have this thing and it's yes. like yes you have this thing to offer right um mm, so and good. the ways in which you describe it as your work through the world as an individual also feels like uh um the multiple ways we're trying to to do it with lane and one of the things mm. we've used is this tagline called see leaders make change Mm. and sort of circling around a back a little bit to when you were talking about intention um i'm curious how that phrase lands for you like see leaders make change and like your thoughts on leadership and change
1: yeah i mean i think that um i think there's something is it i'm like (laughs) i'm like is it c-s-e-e
0: it is c-s-e-e leaders make change
1: you know, I had this thing with the ocean, so I was like, "Let me just make sure it's not like leaders oh. of the sea, and we're talking about mer people because I'm also mm-hmm. here for that." So yeah. <laughs> that makes me I want mean, to I do a whole new analogy. <laughs> you're like, "Well, wait a second. Yeah, no, I mean, I love this idea that you're inviting folks to to watch how change happens, um, and that part of what leadership is is moving past what's already happened, like moving past the possible and actually changing conditions and you know, for, to me, what a great organizer is, is someone who's making material changes for their people that align with what those people envision for themselves, while also continuously setting the bar higher and higher for what, what humans can do, what a community can do. So mm-hmm. I love it as an invitation. Um, and then I think there's something around, like, who makes change mm-hmm. and, like, being able to point out, like, like you know, people are, are making change all the time. Like people are creating change all the time. And so then I think there's something about like leadership means doing it on purpose, <laughs> right? It's like, Oh, like I recognize that every action that I engage in is changing the world around me, changing my relationships, changing what's possible. And I'm not going to mess around with that miraculous power. I'm going to actually use it for good and lead people. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, cause I, I see that so often where folks like, It's like walking around with a magic wand and just kind of tossing it willy-nilly all over the place, like not recognizing like you're changing things. You have a funky mood and you walk into the office that you share with other people and you haven't attended to what's going on and you don't own it and take responsibility like here's what's up, right? You've put that funk on everybody. It's basically like you curse other people's day, I think communities can get impacted too, you know, organizations go through moments of organizational beef and tension. And all of a sudden you've created a funk that the community has to like sense and figure out because they can't, you know, they don't know. So yeah, those are some of my initial thoughts on hearing it. Um, and do you feel like the leaders that you're working with are super aligned? Like we know what kind of change it is we're making.
0: We do. Um, I think that's the, the layers of change are interesting, right? Because they work together as a body of six organizations in a cohort, but they are also each individuals, like each individual organization. And then inside the organizations are the individual people who run it, right? Mm-hmm. So this um, alignment around um, understanding how we can collectively impact the material conditions for everyone is aligned like we were like yes this is one of the things we want to do we don't yes. want to continue to be inside the same system we want to change the system
1: yes that's and so where, good.
0: where it becomes exciting um to me is then you get to dig into a level of complexity of where each person in each organization is positioned um, yes. this question of positionality is something I've been playing around with a lot in my mind around like, what is, uh, and it's a phrase I learned from you that I'm, I'm going to offer back, <laughs> um, the most elegant next step, right? Ooh. Not the same step for everyone. Um, no,
1: it's not the same step for everyone. And I got that phrase from a friend too. It's one of those things that you hear and as soon as you hear it, you're like, boom what is it? <laughs> I want yeah. those. I only want to take those kind of steps.
0: Exactly. When I
1: think that that positionality, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing with your leaders around positionality.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, in thinking about how um, to impact a larger system, I think about the different ways I think about it as an ecosystem, right? Okay. So, great. Uh, some folks uh, have access to water. You know, some folks have access to soil. Some folks have access to the seeds and yeah. um, they're, the the work is in our ability to connect these things and then um, align align all of them at at a time that they can have the most impact with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about you know uh, when we think about the, particularly the art and culture field, like some folks have deep relationships in community and can access that and can teach others how to make sure that the community's voice is really relevant. Some people have relationships with funders and you know can, can bring them along and, and access to uh, racial equity and justice. Some people have uh, um, are teaching all of us around like, organizational practices of wellness. How do you care for yourself and your people and like how yes. you put all of these ingredients into this gumbo we're calling lane slash transformation of the field, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The gumbo uh, ecosystem. The gumbo ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to make a visual of that. Yes, please. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Sounds delicious. I'm like I want to be the and sausage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. Okay. You're absolutely. <laughs> you're absolutely the sausage yeah. in the gumbo. Thank um, you. And so I think dreams the, come true. Yeah. Yeah, and I got to make you pot of gumbo next time.
1: Yes, again. I'm so here for that. <laughs>
0: um, I'm curious if there are folks out there in the world that are, are inspiring to you or feel like when, when you hear this idea of even see leaders make change, because I, I, I'm mm-hmm. excited about this leader as both individual and collective around yeah. like how, um, are there folks or experiences that you're like, oh yeah, that makes me think of this person or this experience that I've had in this group? Mm-hmm. Or-
1: mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty fortunate in that I feel like I've lined myself up to regularly be around people and institutions that are inspiring to me. Mm. Um, When I hear the phrase, one of the first people that pops to mind or first groups of people that pop to mind are bold, like black organizing for leadership and dignity um, helmed by Denise Perry. And part of the reason it jumps up is because they are answering we i'm a part of that group and part of the training body um my my honor each year is i get to be part of the national gathering which is like black family reunion times organizing times bliss um Thanks. but <laughs> um but part of why she leaves to mind is because you know we've been in this long journey as people who are descended from enslaved people on this land And as, as things have gotten more and more heated, more and more dire, um, you know, there, there's this ever increasing urgency on like, how are we going to get ourselves free? How are we gonna get ourselves more free than we are now? How are we gonna reach behind us and keep our children safe? How are we gonna do these things? And they're, they're huge questions, they're urgent questions. And she looked at all of this as an organizer with other people who were also really forward thinking and said, you know, we actually have to really attend to the black body, the black self, the black soma. And there has to be a level of turning, you know, while we do political education, right. Mm -hmm. While we understand what it means to actually do transformative organizing, to actually be on the street, changing material conditions. We also have to attend to our trauma. We have to recognize that black people walk with such a heavy load of trauma that it can be really difficult to do the very um, fundamental things that we have to do to be in community with each other. So part of that course and a part of that organization, everyone who's come through it, has experience with somatics, um, like really turning and looking at the places where there is trauma or the places where there are um, there's pain and oppression, impacts of oppression of oppression, in the body, and then starting to actually say this part needs to be healed, and it's not a before or after. It's not like first go heal yourself completely and totally, and then come get free, right? Yeah, it's like these things have to happen in parallel. And for her to, to me, that's that is what a great leader does: is, is looks at it and says, "This may not make sense to the rest of y'all who are like, we just need to run another campaign, we just need to, you know, get another person elected." When you see that. Um, get another piece of policy moved. I think for someone like Denise, she looks at that and is like, all of that is great and we do need to do all those things, but we also need to attend to the spirits and the well-being um, on every level of the people who are running those campaigns. Because what you know c- keeps happening to us is that we, we win the battle, but we lose all the humans, all the soldiers, all the people that are part of it um, fall to the wayside. And there's no one to actually uphold the victories and we just end up circling back and moving back. Um, so she's someone, and she, and Sindolo, and Lorelai, and Alta, and Mama Lisa, there's like a whole team of us who train Prentice, Mark Anthony, and there's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a thick team, Adaku. Um, so, um, so she leaps to mind. Um, of course, you know, the, the women behind Black Lives Matter, um, and the staff who have kept Black Lives Matter going, and then expanded to the movement for Black Lives, um, And, you know, sort of understanding that, like, Black Lives Matter never existed in a vacuum. It was always, like, a huge network of, and there has Mm -hmm. been since, again, since we got here, a huge network of Black people trying to figure this out. And there's been a lot of, like, you know, steps, learning steps along that path. What I think has been brilliant is that folks have not said, okay, fine, like, we're just going to pack it up and go home, you know, in the face of what has been pretty intense you know, critique and bullying and pushbacks and like all this stuff from so many different directions. Instead, folks have been like, okay, how do we broaden out? How do we begin to see ourselves more and more as part of a we and not just an individual organization or an individual effort? Um, so to me, that's what, again, what leadership looks like. And, you know, our friend Malkia, um, Yeah, Malkia I feel like is in some days I wake up and I'm just like Malkia is somehow single handedly saving the entire internet while also sitting next to her wife who is facing um, this battle with late stage cancer and I think there's something brilliant about the vulnerability um, that Malkia walks with every day to Mm -hmm. to say like even as I'm even as I'm in this you know this place of deep love and sort of deep surrender to what this love is calling for me right now, I'm still, I still have my eyes on this, um, on that neutrality and on the internet and on our right to communicate with each other and understanding how fundamental that is. And to me, that's also leadership is to say like, I, my heart is breaking and I'm still here and I'm still building this movement. And I still think it's really important. And one doesn't supersede or preempt the other in a way. Yeah. Um, and I think so often that happens when it's like, oh, there's something hard. I have to take myself away from everyone and, and feel my pain in private. Um, that a leader shouldn't be seen that way. And I think what she's doing instead is saying, no, like, I, this is me as a leader. I'm leading and I'm loving. This is me as a leader. I'm leading and I need my community's help right now. This is me as a leader. I'm, you know, hurting a lot today and I'm also writing this column or doing this interview or other things. And I don't know, just to me, there's a way of that, that leading with vulnerability, leading with your spirit and your grief and your heart intact. That's the kind of leadership I'm interested in.
0: Yeah. It seems like if if we're going to, work our way out of white supremacy and and, uh, structural oppressions, that we need to reimagine leadership. Like, what does leadership look like, you know, in a way that is different than the cold, hard, uh, masculine, sort of uh, disconnected, uh, um, only focused on the action at hand, leaving emotion outside of the conversation, Mm -hmm. that that actually doesn't get us Uh, um, doesn't get us more towards liberation that just gets to change the, as you said earlier, like changes the people in the space, but doesn't actually change the structure.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's a lot of where emergent strategy came from, was like, you know, reading Octavia Butler's books and seeing different kinds of leader put forth there. And then looking at natural operating systems and being like, well, leadership doesn't, it doesn't always look like the alpha male creature killing everybody and standing alone on a hill there's all these other models where lots of creatures are working together and proliferating their species and i'm like i want to figure out how we do that for my species it it feels like we're heading in the other direction i would like to be part of turning that around and getting us in right relationship and you know partially because i love being on this planet and partially because there's children that i love Um, that are going to have to live on this planet and partially just like the human experiment, right? I'm really interested in Mm -hmm. what it would look like for us to be in right relationship. I feel a sacred um, connection to this place that I think it's not an accident that this is the planet we ended up on and this is the planet we're responsible for. So I got, you know, to me, like changing what leadership looks like is maybe the most crucial part of changing what the future looks like.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate that, you know, in, in thinking about what you said uh, and what you offered both around Denise and Bold and Malkia, one of the gatherings we had with Lane, one of the um, EDs was like, oh, I didn't realize how much PTSD I was carrying, right?
1: mm-hmm. Like that,
0: uh, mm-hmm. um, that these things like imp- and impact folks' ability to vision, to see what's next, yes. right? Like That's it. So this idea of like working through the, the individual working through the healing, working through um, understanding and, and and working on um, the way oppressions actually lay in our bodies and our minds as an individual actually creates larger a larger vision for us to see what 's possible like this point, yeah. the possibilities and be in spaces of possibilities that's right that 's
1: right I mean I feel like that's well i'll just say like I actually think that it can happen on two levels like I think. One is like blunt trauma, you know, something actually happens to our community or in our organizing space that is so traumatic and we try to keep moving through it, keep living with it, um, keep going through all the grief it takes to actually care about humans and watch them die and suffer in unfair ways and continue waking up and trying to make it better. I think the other way is that piece around getting stuck inside the box of what people have determined as politically possible or, you know, period, possible period, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that we get stuck in that box and it make it's like so small that no matter how we're growing, we're contorting to try, you know, try to stay inside this box. And I think that is the other way that we kind of get truncated and deterred um, from pushing for the kind of change we actually need because we're just like, well, you know, we can only create change inside this corrupt system. So, you know, yeah. um, you know, I think the queer marriage conversation has been like that, right? Where it's like, great, it's really exciting that people who want to be able to get married can get married, but when I think about what I want my rights to be as a person who sleeps with people of the same gender than me, um, same gender as me, <laughs> same gender as me, um, or a multitude of other genders, I'm like, there's so many things I want that have nothing to do with the traditional marriage structure. Um, but then, you know, in the realm of what is politically possible, like that's the step. And, you know, what always happens is we take that step, you know, we put ourselves behind the politically possible step. And then once that step's been achieved, you know, a lot of folks are like, okay, now we are not going to keep stepping with you (laughs) Um, to get to that more radical ground. And so I think I also, you know, it's just like one of those things like when we want to make more things possible, we have to build the kind of relationships Where folks really care about each other across political difference. So if we work together on your thing, you're going to care about working together on my thing. You know, not just because it's transactional, but because we start to really have a deep relationship to each other's like well-being and and the longevity of each other's lives and communities. Mm
0: -hmm. It feels like relationship in a lot of ways is at the core of emergent strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, In some just all
1: the things. It's all yeah, the things. it's all the things. I have a piece in there that I actually expand on for the Pleasure Activism book, but it's about liberated relationships. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, I think Gopal Dianini brought this idea to me that like the smallest unit in the human species is actually the unit of the relationship, which I really nerded out on that... <laughs> It's like, we think we're actually out here by ourselves, but we just can't do things by ourselves. Um, You know, like even, you know, like eating, sleeping, transportation, like we just rely on either what other humans have done or are doing or might be willing to do um, for our survival and our well-being. Mm -hmm. I think it's why we're born the way we're born. You know, other species are born and they can kind of stand and go pretty quickly. Um, are like little baby turtles you know they're like born and then they're just like okay race into the ocean <laughs> you know yeah and then humans are born and it's just like i'm screaming and pooping and i can't see anything um this is going to be my existence for several months so you know it's just like that level of immense vulnerability it feels intentional it feels like there's something we're supposed to take from that um that'll shape what kind of species we are for our entire existence and I don't think we've been
0: listening to that. It makes me think about uh, um, a, a quote from someone we both love. Dream Hampton posted. Um, oh yeah. On uh, her Facebook page, uh, when George Zimmerman was acquitted, uh, she posted, um, "Our strength shouldn't be measured by our ability to endure suffering." Yes. And I think this. What I'm li- as I'm listening mm. to you, it. That came to mind because I'm thinking about the way in which we, um, how we interact. Like, what is that relationship built upon? And in merger strategy, you talk about moving it at the speed of trust, and yes. um, that um, to be able to be in a relationship that feels um, uh, aligned, equitable, that feels like a real, not transactional, but like transformative, rel- liberatory relationship. As you're saying, yeah. what is that? require of both parties? What does that require of the people who want to be in relationship with each other? You
1: know? That's great. Well, you know, I think one of the things that happens that Dream also has talked about in the past is relationship supremacy and couple supremacy and how in in this context I want to talk about it as something that we kind of only tune into relationship management um as it relates to intimate relationships, you know. Like with my boo, I really learn how to communicate and how to take in feedback and how to like stop being passive aggressive about the dishes or, you know, make a direct request when I want the toilet paper to be turned the right way (laughs) in the roller or whatever it is, right? The right way. I said it, you know, so I think there's, there's, we like do so much to learn how to do relationship in that space, but then we often won't put that same level of attention into the relationships um, where we spent most of our waking hours, like the people that we're actually trying to, you know, make change with and ferment revolution with. And that always blows my mind. So when I first started doing, um, when I first started doing facilitation work, one of the things that I would hold in my head, in my heart is that what I'm doing is organizational healing. What I'm really tuned into is where has there been damage to the relationships of this structure? And how do I help to redevelop or regrow or return, restore these relationships to health? Um, Because a lot of times what people are really tripping about is not, it's not actually the political difference. You know, people love to say like, we just have these deep, deep, deep political differences. But often when I like pull up the hood and start looking in there, I'm just like, it's actually not that deep, you know, or at least not as it's been articulated so far but what is really definitely happening is folks have got hurt feelings and have not learned how to be in healthy conflict with each other and would rather cancel each other than have a hard conversation. Um, and then, you know, you just end up with a culture of folks who don't know how to be positive and proactive in a, in work relationships or friendships or platonic relationships. Um, folks who don't know how to set the kind of boundaries that you learn to set in your home, you know, but you don't know how to set that with your boss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it's not just about, about the need for relationship, but that piece around moving at the speed of trust, which a lot of people have articulated in the world is like, this, this is what we need to be up to, this makes sense. Um, it's like, it actually, it, it works both ways, you know? It means mm-hmm. slowing down on the front end, in order to actually build trust, it means the trust is gonna get broken a lot of times and like in that breaking of trust is how you actually learn what the lines are and what really matters to you and what you're gonna fight for and fight over and and all those things. Um, And then once that trust is there, you can move very, very fast because you're like, I know that I can count on these people. I know what I can count on them to do. I know what people are skilled at and not skilled at. I know how people respond under pressure. Um, you know, uh, I teach somatics with the generative somatics team, and you know we have these training teams of you know four to seven people at a time, and like you learn a lot. You're under immense pressure, and it's really good to know. Oh, on day three of a training, <laughs> you know, I'm going to get loopy and cranky, and I want my team to know that so that we can all work together on getting the the energy right. You know, or if I'm in a space where someone brings up something that was a traumatic experience for me, I need one of the other teachers to put a hand on my back and I can trust that hand on my back. I I trust that they're not saying you're weak, but rather, you know, this might impact and touch you and I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, No, I, and I'll say that, emergence and emergent strategy is one of our our cornerstones of lane. And part of the reason that phrase trust, uh, moving at the speed of trust comes up because um, it reminded us to work on three levels. One is like the level that you're talking about around like human capacity. Folks Mm -hmm. always go back to like, Capacity building of organizations, that's great. Systemic oppressions and and how we are intentionally dismantling in that arena. But the human capacity piece is what it feels like you're talking about as well. Mm -hmm. How to Mm -hmm. be, what it means to even be able to trust and what do we need Mm -hmm. to cultivate and how do we need to be with each other to grow that.
1: Yeah, and like understanding that it's not a human, like it's not an individual flaw. Mm
0: -hmm. If you have
1: a hard time trusting in this environment, that to me seems very logical, (laughs) you know? um, Like, most people that I've met have endured some kind of often sexual or physical harm early in life that broke down their relationship to trust and broke down their sense that those people who were around them were always worthy of trust. We create a culture where a lot of lying happens so that people can impress the folks around them. So you're supposed to constantly be putting on a mask and putting on a face and doing selfies with someone else's you know filters on it and like there's so many levels and levels and levels to um, organize dishonesty right and Mm -hmm. then we expect people to somehow show up in political organizing spaces and just be like you know we're like some kind of higher form of humans who never lie (laughs) like it's like no we're just like everyone else we're humans and so for me I'm always thinking about that I'm like oh you know when and where do I lie and how can I unlearn that behavior who taught me how to lie you know do i only lie when i'm afraid like you know start to get curious about those things Mm -hmm. um and then who do i trust why do i trust could i learn to trust more people could i learn to extend trust with more ease you know right now i'm working on um being the kind of person who trusts first and and then like keeps returning to trust you know, mm-hmm. so instead of being like, no, you have to earn my trust over a period of 12 years um, where you never make any mistakes <laughs> and okay. never hurt my feelings and like never do, you know, your eye never wanders or whatever it is that we try to set up as like the super unrealistic conditions under which trust would be offered. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, yeah, of course you don't trust anyone. Like your gates are so high. Like, how, you know, no one can get get through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to flip that in my own personal life and in my work life um, so that I start out from a place of trust and then learn if I need boundaries inside that trust. You know, mm-hmm. learn if I need different communication skills inside that trust and, and go from there.
0: I mean, it sounds like the, the relationship to iteration feels really important and grounded.
1: Exactly. In <laughs> exactly
0: uh, (laughs) you're like I trust you and then you do something different than what I thought and I'm like oh let me throw you away or you're clearly you want my worst interest at heart or you're trying to stab me in the back Uh, and it's like oh okay so if this is where you are needing to be for whatever reason let's understand that then this is what the iteration of our relationship becomes right how do we how do we have that navigation, which kind of leads me to something that I know is near and dear to your heart in this question around um, the role and importance of facilitation.
1: Yay. I think it's so important. Um, I really am a facilitation evangelist, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm, I'm working I'm beginning to work on a little next book on just facilitation. Um, Cause I'm really thinking a lot about what, what I mean by facilitation and why I think it's so important, especially for folks trying to create change together. Um, And I think that it's like, you know, at the basic level, like how do we create more ease between humans, between the nodes of the system so that we can address the hard things we actually need to address um, and not get stuck on, on the places where it's like, Oh, this place is confusing or this place is, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, I'm just hurt around it, right? Like, you know, if you approach everyone, and someone taught me this, and it's been a game changer for me, it's like approaching everyone as someone who has trauma, and who has been shaped by some trauma, whether they um, have been shaped by being a recipient of the benefits that come from traumatizing, oppressing others, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's, you know, men and white folks, (laughs) and it's just like, yeah, you think that you have some kind of brilliance or you just got lucky in a life and it's like actually no your ancestors like you know raped and murdered people and enslaved people or like did the Holocaust or like did some some things. And yeah. so then you ended up with what you have, right? It's like tracing stuff back to like you benefit from trauma or you suffer from trauma. Like it's touched you somehow. And then if you get into that mindset, um, then you come into a space and it's like, okay, we're gonna try to do something together, but of course We're going to run into bumps because we're all walking with trauma in some way. And I feel like a lot of what a facilitator can do is to say, A, I totally normalize the fact that this is difficult and that it's been difficult for humans since the beginning of time and we're just like still learning. And then B, let's focus on the things that we actually can grow and build and move together here and then on a, you know, just very basic level, it's just so much easier to have someone else help hold a conversation that's meaningful to you. Um, and I think that for couples, and I think that for organizations, and I think that for parents, you know, <laughs> that it's just like, so that you can fully be there and not have to be a 1000% responsible for everything that comes out of you. Um, you want facilitators who can be like i got it i'll hold it you just share you just speak your truth you just feel your feelings you just keep moving forward you know so yeah i'm a fan You, uh,
0: you took <laughs> the work out of it. i was like but that's so hard adrian like the mm-hmm. this idea of being able to see uh everyone in relationship to trauma in some ways right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. because for those who have accumulated based on the trauma of others you know, it's so, oh, like, so how hard. do you find compassion for, for that person who has all the things, right? Yeah, <laughs> and- I
1: mean, I don't know if this is the best way. <laughs> um, but lately, I have been doing some, like, almost like soul visualiz- visualization work, where I'm just like, you know, when I come across someone who seems to have so much more privilege than me, if I can pause and I can wait and I can ground in um, almost every time what gets exposed is that that person feels really isolated and lonely and guilty. And there's just a whole mess inside there um, or they're asleep. Like they don't even know what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times what I have to generate for them is like a compassion of, I wouldn't want the burden that they have to walk with. It's not worth you know, it's like the privilege is never worth the cost um, Mm -hmm. on that larger karmic level, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's not saying I don't want to have enough in my life, you know. I love having enough. I love, like, experiencing spas and hot tubs and self-care and luxury, you know. I just think that that should be something that everyone has access to. And I'm not saying that none of that access should be tied to work either. Um, You know, I'm not not out here, like, just – just you know i'm like i think the world has to be made and i think we are the ones who get to be the makers of the world i think that you know our job is to find like what parts of the world do i want to be responsible for helping to make and to get to spend our lives as much of our lives as possible doing that work right Mm -hmm. and then i think that if everyone is actually tuned in and tapped into what it is they're supposed to be doing it becomes easy to share the wealth Cause it really feels like, oh, this is a society that makes sense. And that making isn't like it, to me, it feels very different from producing, um, in my heart, it does, you know, where I'm like, oh, sometimes I need to make a story or I need to make it easier for these people to have a conversation or I need to make it easier for this person to become a parent, you know, um, by being a doula for them. Or I need to, you know, like that I need to help make the world, um, Versus like, I just need to produce, produce, produce something that people can buy and swallow, consume, you know, disappears and then have to keep producing more.
0: I was, I was thinking about um, your podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. And we'll get to that in (laughs) a second with your sister Autumn and how you all pull out a sentence that like frames the whole uh, conversation. And I think you just, this question of making the world.
1: Like, to me, that's what a great leader is really doing, is saying, let's make the world we want. Like, let's make the world we really long for, let's make it together, and let's not let anyone stand in the way of it, mm-hmm. right? You yeah. know, I'm like, I don't Even wanna ourselves. be operating at a lower level than that, especially not ourselves. And that's yeah. usually who's gonna do it, you know, is those voices in your head. I mean, this is the great thing, I have direct action in my history. Um, I was with Ruckus for a long time and I'm still on their board and I'm just like a direct action. You know, they train people in doing nonviolent direct action and I'm I'm a fan. And this is one of the main things that keeps us in line is that we believe it's more important to be polite than to stand up for our beliefs. And so when people do, you know, step outside the lines and say, wait a second, this is not fair. This is not right. We're going to stop traffic until something is done about this injustice, you know, and folks are just like, what? You know, and I'm like, it's, it's more worrisome to you that this person's going to stop traffic for a little bit of time to get your attention on this issue than it is that a young person was killed. That's, you know, that's a problem, right? We have this polite culture. So I think so much of leadership is just being like, we're going to make the world and we're going to actively intercede on, um, on this existing world and the places where it is unfair and the places where it's
0: intolerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, And the, and the risk in the relationship that, that occurs in that your your relationship Mm -hmm. to risk and what you're willing to risk in order Mm -hmm. to make the world that you and the folks that you are making it with believe in.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. So you say something in your podcast in the, in the intro um, the podcast is called how to survive the end of the world Mm-hmm. And it is uh, you, Adrienne Marie Brown, and Autumn. I know it's an M, but I can't remember. Autumn Megan Brown. Autumn Megan Brown. All the A and B. Yes. And you talk about it's uh, discussion around rigor, humor, humor, and what am I missing?
1: That? <laughs> we say grace, rigor, and curiosity.
0: Grace, rigor, and curiosity. That's. Nice.
1: But I love that you believe it's humor because I think we're pretty funny.
0: <laughs> it is pretty funny. It's great.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm like mm. um um. I talk with a lot of organizations around like their values. Do you, are you clear about what your values are? Because it's not just to put on a wall, but that they are embedded in your your change, how you believe you make the world, and like what's mm. important. And so when you're talking about grace, rigor, and curiosity, can you tell me a little bit about how you all landed? Um, how mm-hmm. you landed on those three, and how you um, feel like those get embodied? Yeah. Well.
1: I think that when you know when we were initially talking about doing the podcast, one of the things that felt important to us was like, you know apocalypse is happening, and it's happening now, and it happens in these ongoing ways, and we are part of communities that have survived apocalypse, and so what are some of the common traits of communities that have survived and are surviving, and the grace part felt. You know, like it came kind of first and it's beautiful because, you know, to, for me to be able to say grace and honor the work of my mentor, Grace, um, while also being able to think about what it is to to have grace under pressure and grace under fire and grace in the face of change. Um, and then the curiosity is like, you know, kind of another sort of thing that Emergent Strategy is made of, like at the cellular level, is like, how do we actually keep our curiosity how do we keep our curiosity intact um i think it's one of the things that society wants to take not society like in that way i'm trying to think of how to say this i feel like it's one of the things that racial capitalism wants to take from us mm-hmm. is curiosity is a sense of wonder and a sense that things can still be changed because if we don't have that we become very easy to manipulate and control so the For us, it felt like, oh, we want to be generating curiosity. Curiosity is also what leads to alternatives and solutions. And it feels like the communities that have been able to survive are the ones that have said, we honor the past, but we don't fetishize the past. Mm -hmm. We want to figure out how to learn the lessons from the past um, and stay curious about the unknown and what's coming to us and stay curious about that which we can't control, right? Um, And so then rigor... Um, it's like if you're gonna prepare for apocalypse and if you're gonna prepare for being in communities in different ways, it takes rigor. It's not enough to just say, you know, we kinda think things should be like a little different. It's like, what are you practicing? If you're not rigorously practicing being part of a new world, then no new world is going to suddenly emerge from your system. You're gonna keep replicating the old world. It takes rigor, rigorous practice of transformative justice, rigorous Commitment to being an abolitionist, rigorous um, practice of love and deep relationship that is accountable. You know, it's like, what are you being rigorous about? Um, and the show, you know, we keep learning what we're doing inside those, those guidelines. I, see, I think we're still learning from it. But I've been really excited that those were the words that emerged for us as we were first talking about what it was we were doing, and what we were interested in creating.
0: Oh, that, that's beautiful. And I think particularly because um, we're, we're talking about organizations uh, inside Lane mm-hmm. that are art and cultural organizations, um, the way in which um, racialized capitalism, the way you talked about it, it reduces our curiosity. Actually, um, it reminds me that these organizations are, are places where people can grow that. Uh, yes. and when we are rigorous about that, I, I think a lot about um, white supremacy and racialized capitalism disconnect us from history and truncate our imagination mm-hmm. and how do we then turn around and build um uh uh in ways that connect us like you said doesn't um fetishize it but there's a yeah. whole history we think these things have been around forever and they haven't they've no, been around my so grandma you know exactly um, And so how that inspires our ability to to participate and make the world.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think there's places, right, where I'm like, I love to look back and to look forward at the same time Mm -hmm. and to keep expanding in both directions. And also, you know, I'm one of those people who's like, there's not another time that I would want to be alive,
0: even Mm -hmm. though this
1: time is so challenging. You know, there's not a time before this, especially when it comes to, gender and sexuality, um, there's not another time that I know of where I would be able to be as free as I have been in this lifetime. And I feel like that's important to tune into because I'm like, okay, like, you know, there's actually been apocalypses of whole ways of being that if those had not happened, I would not be able to walk freely in the world. I would not be able to love freely in the world. I'm really grateful that change does come and that change happens. And then I want to make sure, you know, Octavia Butler talked about that God is change, that change is basically the divine force always in motion in the world and that we have to shape change, that we have to shape God, right? That we have to shape that divine force, not mm-hmm. just let it happen to us. So that's, I think, another thrust of the podcast is just saying like, you know, and I think we both thought when we started, like, this will be very disaster skills oriented because we were like both really interested in that and what's emerged instead has been like yes and a disaster skill is like how do you build authentic relationship under pressure um because that's kind of a thing that you need to be able to do how can you tell if someone is trustworthy or not how can you restore right relationship when it's been broken how can you know like there's just these things that are like oh yeah you need to know how to and you need to be visionary Right. I think if you're not visionary, there's no, nothing that, that helps you believe that you can get to another side. Um, and I can, you know, I'm like, you have to, um, I, you know, people talk about it's not enough to just survive. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think about that a lot where I'm like, I want to have a really fucking great life. And I want to honor all of my ancestors who didn't really have great lives. Mm -hmm. Like I have a lot of ancestors who suffered like most of their life was like deep suffering um I'm like I feel like I owe them something and I feel like for everything that I'm still suffering in my life I'm hoping that I'm being accountable to a generation or multiple generations of people who will come after me and who will suffer significantly less because of the sacrifices I make and because of the lessons I learn. otherwise what's the point
0: What is the point?
1: (laughs) Yeah, what's the point, you know?
0: (laughs) It's important to have one. You know, it's important to have one. Um, I am Mm -hmm. so appreciative of this time you've taken to to talk. Um, If there was one or two things that you would leave folks with in terms of uh, um, that's been inspiring to you along your journey, just so they can kind of keep following the thread if they're excited, is there anything you would drop for them?
1: What's been in, in exciting for me in my journey? Or, uh, um, yeah, or inspiring. Yeah, like stuff you need to read. <laughs> yeah. So, I would awesome. say everything that Octavia Butler wrote.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and Gracie Boggs' autobiography called "Living for Change" and the Dao De Ching. Um, I like the Stephen Mitchell translation. Uh, Ursula Gwyn also has an incredible translation. Um, and then there's one other thing that was like flitting around the edge oh and um, Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic
0: okay I love how you were like like, yeah boom 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 let me give these to the people this is the canon (laughs) (laughs) and of course emergent strategies is a part of that so thank you so much for taking oh yeah read my book
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you love thanks so much for having me and I'm so excited about the work Lane is doing with these ideas
0: Thank you for listening. Funding support for Lane is provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. You can find more information about Lane and the amazing organizations involved on the NPN website, www.npnweb.org. This episode was co-edited by Amanda Bankston and Monica Tyran. Jazz Franklin is our podcast editor and sound design by Mootsie Reed.